Life Radio. Stories at the intersection of music and life. Welcome to Music Life Radio. I'm your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com. We feature interviews and stories about and related to music. Today on the program, we feature Penelope Houston, well known for her role in the San Francisco punk band The Avengers. Penelope is also a very successful solo recording artist, and she has a new album out entitled On Market Street. We talked to Penelope about her solo recording career, her time in the Avengers, and hear tracks from her latest album, On Market Street. Sit back and enjoy another episode of Music Live Radio with Penelope Houston, On Market Street. Let's finish listening to All The Way, the first track on the new album. Welcome to uh, Music Live Radio. We have Penelope Houston in our studio today. Thank you very much for coming down. Oh, you're welcome, Dan. It's nice to be here. All right. Uh, the first question I'd like to ask is about your past. And I know you were born in L.A. and you grew up in Seattle. Could you talk a little bit about your upbringing and some of your musical influences on you? I would say my biggest influence would be my mother. She got her master's in... Uh, Music, and actually in choral conducting at Stanford. Oh, wow. And, uh, I mean, she got her Ph.D. there in, in choral conducting. We were always basically brought up believing that music and art were like the twin gods of the world, and those were the things to, to follow. At least I, always, I, I just remember thinking that from a very young age. I didn't know I was going to be a musician because when I was growing up, I the only instrument I played was the violin, and rather poorly, I'm afraid. <laughs> I was not a great violin player. I also liked to sing when I was growing up, but I really thought I was going to be a, a painter, oh, an art, a visual yeah. artist. So that was kind of my focus throughout my childhood and youth, and ended up coming to the Art Institute in San Francisco when I was... 19 or so, to follow my dream, Yeah, my dream of being a painter. What kind of music were you listening to when you were growing up? My mom listened mostly classical. Um, she was also a big Gilbert and Sullivan fan. Mm-hmm. I don't think that, I'm not sure. I don't, th- I don't think that influenced me. I would say around the house, it was mostly classical. We didn't have too much popular music in mm-hmm. the house. So it wasn't until I really, you know, that was hanging out with friends and stuff that I would became exposed to some popular music. You went to Fairhaven College before the uh, Art Institute, mm-hmm. right? and that was in Bellingham, Washington. Mm-hmm. That's kind of an artsy type of school, if I, if I understand. Is that correct? It's um, an experimental school? Yeah, and it's an experimental school. It's part of Western Washington State University at that time, Western Washington State College. So if you enrolled at Fairhaven, you could pursue purely the alternative course, or you could take courses from... Uh, the main university, mm-hmm. and and that's what I did. I was using their print, their print studios and their art department a lot, and not doing that much at Fairhaven. But I lived at Fairhaven, and and all my friends were there, and that's where <laughs> I, 
that's where I got into my my notion of just taking art courses and kind of ignoring all the requirements. I don't know how this happened, but (laughs) now I'm trying to get my BA, and I kind of rue the day that I somehow avoided having any kind of um, advisor tell me, you know, eventually you're going to have to take the math, the science, the, the English, you know, speech, all this stuff. And I just somehow didn't realize it. How many years were you doing that at Fairhaven? I think I was at Fairhaven for a year, maybe a year and a quarter. And then I left there. I moved back to the Seattle area and um, waited around while I missed a couple deadlines to apply to the Art Institute and finally uh, (laughs) got into the Art Institute. But while I was in Seattle during that period, um, I met the, the Tupperwares, Tommy gear and and tomato duplenty and uh, and they were in the whiz kids at the time and they were forming the tupperwares and then they w- ended up moving on to la and becoming the screamers but that was kind of a formative period for me where i realized that you could basically just freak out and do whatever <laughs> you wanted um that was kind of pre-punk but i was already slicking my hair back and wearing like you know, putting on a fake mustache or something, <laughs> yeah. wearing a leather jacket and a wife beater t-shirt. Were there any other bands that you had been listening to or interested in in Seattle around that time? Well, even before that, I was listening to Patti Smith as soon as Horses came out, which I guess was 74, 75. So from Bellingham to Seattle, I was I was into that. And, and I had friends in Seattle that we would go to, well, we'd listen to... Uh, Lou Reed and Brian Ferry and this would have been around 75 76 mm-hmm. before really any uh any of the what we think of as punk really started it was just the eve of 77 when i moved to san francisco it was december 31st <laughs> 1970 uh, 1976 okay when i arrived in san francisco and then how did you end up meeting the people that became the Avengers? Well, one of the first things I saw when I got to town was this amazing poster, um, that, this flyer that was up on all the poles, and it was for a band called Crime, and they were playing at a club called the Mobuhe Gardens, mm-hmm. this weird little Filipino supper club. <laughs> and I decided I, that I would go down there and see what was up with that because their posters were so cool. Actually, Danny... Furious, Danny O'Brien, who was uh, who was one of the people involved in forming the Avengers, had just been going to the Art Institute. So we crossed paths somewhere, at, probably mm-hmm. at school, but I think he had already um, dropped out. And he was planning on, we, we started to go out, and he was planning on starting a band, and he brought his friend Greg um, up from, from, Orin, from Fullerton. Orange County, and uh, Greg was a guitar player, and and they they decided they were going to start a band, and they and Danny was living in this big warehouse with a bunch of other artists, and they had a, a PA set up. I guess they were rehearsing, and one day they were all gone, and I was in there, and I started messing around with the PA and singing through the microphone, and I just fell in love with the <laughs> the power of um, amplification. I was like, ah, this is awesome. I'm so loud. Then they came back. I was like, I'm your singer. I'm going to be in your band. And then uh, I think the first bass player we had, Jonathan Postal, was a student, a photography student at the Art Institute. He played with us for about four shows, and then we replaced him with, uh, with Jimmy Wilsey, who was this kid from St. Louis. And he was playing on the streets. He was playing guitar on the streets, and mm-hmm. he just knew a bunch of people and was wanted to be in a musician. Mm-hmm. And we were like, well, can you play bass? He's <laughs> like, of course I can. It's like guitar with four strings, yeah. you, know? you know. He didn't really say that, but he leapt into that position and held it for the rest of the time. And, and the band was formed. What year was that? I was 77. I think our first performance was possibly in May at the warehouse, and it was just a party. Mm -hmm. And we just learned, this is with 
Jonathan Postal, I think. We just learned a bunch of cover songs. Lou Reed, Patti Smith, The Who. It's a bunch. And then we played for people, and they were, you know, hanging out and dancing and stuff. And then we got invited to do a show at the Mabuhe. And I think that show was in June. And before that show... I went to L.A. and visited my friends, Tomata and Tommy, who had moved from Seattle to L.A. and formed the Screamers. And I told them I was starting this band and what we were doing, and they were like, oh, well, you know, you can't do cover songs. you got to write your own songs. And I was like, oh, well, our show's, in, you know, it's in five days. And they were like, so, write five songs. Yeah. <laughs> So we came back and we wrote a bunch of songs, and actually some of those songs stuck, in, interestingly. So that first week before that show, we, we were inspired to get to work. And uh, I think we wrote like five or six songs that we played that night. What was the first song you guys wrote that you remember standing out? Well, out of that five, I think we had Car Crash. We had I Believe in Me. Some other ones that maybe didn't stick. My boyfriend's a pinhead. <laughs> I love the Ramones. Vernon is a fag. And I think there's one more, but I can't remember <laughs> what it is. Vernon is a fag. Um, it's kind of a hilarious song. It was a piece of graffiti that was sprayed over a lot of San Francisco. <laughs> right at the moment we were <laughs> looking for song titles. I was like, oh, that's cool. Danny wrote. Danny wrote that. It was a pretty funny, <laughs> funny song. But, um, yeah, Car Crash and I Believe in Me, I believe, were in the, the first handful of songs. And the first show we did, so it was uh, the nuns were having a party at the Mabuhay because they were opening for Brian Ferry or somebody at some big show. And so this was kind of the after party. Mm -hmm. So it was a, a party celebrating their, like, moment of glory. And we somehow were invited to, to do a short set, and it was really our first public performance. I remember getting on stage, being a little bit nervous. I was 19 at the time. And the band started playing, and I was like, I can't remember how this song goes. <laughs> I don't remember any of the words. I don't know when I'm coming in or what to sing. This is a nightmare. I just can't do this. I'm not cut out. And then they all suddenly stopped playing. And one of them said, what are you playing? And they said, I'm playing this. And the other one said, oh, well, we're playing that. And they were playing two different songs. Oh, that'll be confusing for anybody. <laughs> because we'd written the song list wrong or something. I don't know who wrote the set list. But it was like, oh, oh, okay. So then they started the song, all playing the same song. And then suddenly it all came back to me. And I knew how to sing. And I knew the lyrics. And I knew when to come in. It was like, okay. Thank God, but there was this, this little brief moment where I just thought, oh, I've completely blanked out and I don't know what to do. Oh, God. But anyway, after that little hurdle, we went on. And there are, there are people who say, that was the most awesome show the Avengers ever played, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't. <laughs> well, that's good. What other mom uh, notable moments stand out for you during the original Avengers run? Um. The day we went to rehearsal, and Greg said, oh, I made up this riff, and he started playing, da -da 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 -da. and I started singing, and I think pretty much within that one rehearsal, I'd written all the lyrics to The American in Me, mm -hmm. but that was one of those songs that just sort of fell out of song heaven or whatever. Magical moment. Yeah. <laughs> a five-minute song. And it's probably one of the band's most memorable songs, I think.
When we played with the Sex Pistols, um, it was pretty memorable. And it was memorable, one, because it was terrifying, because the audience was huge. <laughs> the stage, the nuns played first. They were not happy about that. They actually called me and said, do you want to change places with us? That's fine with us. And I was like, no, thanks so much for the offer. Don't think so. <laughs> so by the time they'd finished playing, the stage was completely covered in spit. Oh, yeah. People have been throwing things, spitting. And this audience of five, 6,000 people um, was bigger than the Sex Pistols I'd ever played to and certainly yeah. bigger than anybody we'd ever played to. And, and um, we, you know, we knew all the punks in L.A. and all the punks in San Francisco, and we didn't know who these people were and where they came <laughs> from. But they had kind of learned how to act, and, yeah. they, and one of the things they learned was that you spit. So when I first walked out into the spotlight on that big stage and that big audience, I slipped <laughs> in some spit. <laughs> I didn't fall all the way to the stage, but I was just like, fuck, where am I? What am I doing here? Um, there's a kind of a cool, I don't know if you can link to this, but there's a kind of a cool um, thing is that on Wolfgang's Vault, which is the Bill Graham Presents website, they, I think they have uh, streaming of the whole Avengers set. Yeah, we'll, we'll put a link to that. Yeah. And... Um, it's pretty cool because you can kind of see how terrified we were at the beginning of the set and how we overcame that and yeah. and uh, stuck through it and, and became our usual angry and righteous <laughs> selves by the end of the set. That's got to be kind of shocking because you're not really used to that type of punk where they're spitting at you. That's not, that wasn't really a San Francisco thing, right? Yeah, plus, you know, how many people are going to spit at, at the Mabuhay? Maybe a yeah. few, but it's yeah, not yeah. enough. <laughs> yeah, it's not 5,000 people. <laughs> I went yeah. out in the audience when the Sex Pistols were playing, and I tried to get up close to the stage as close as I could. And um, when I was, I don't know, still maybe 20 feet from the stage, it was so tight and so packed, and I was completely covered with sweat, but it was not my sweat. <laughs> And I could probably have lifted my feet off the ground and not yeah. moved an inch. So it was really kind of um, unbearable in the audience. And I noticed that from when we were performing. I felt like if I spotted one of my friends for just a split second, I'd look back and they would have disappeared. And it was just this sea of mm. heads all smashed together, kind of like. It looks unpleasant. And then uh, when I went out yeah. there, and it was, I was like, I'm going to go backstage. I have a perfect <laughs> viewpoint of the back of Sid Vicious. Yeah. So. Now, the Sex Pistols were pretty impressed with your performance, if I recall. And you, did you end up with a recording uh, deal with them? Well, or, I, or, I, I would say that's a little overstatement. Um, I think Steve Jones was interested in us and, and Paul Cook. I don't know if uh, we made any kind of impression on it. On anyone else, but their um, touring, their tour manager and somebody who worked with Malcolm a lot, who lived in LA, was Rory Johnston. Mm -hmm. And he actually decided he wanted to manage us before that show, and he was the one who got us in the support slot. And um, when the Sex Pistols broke up, which was, you know, pretty much right after that show, <laughs> they went and were making this movie. And then I think Steve Jones decided. You know, why not try his hand at producing? producing. And I don't think that really stuck for him. I don't mm. think he spent too much time producing after that. But um, he did come back to San Francisco to produce uh, what would become eventually become the White Noise EP. Mm. And uh, he worked with us a little bit in the studio. And my, my impression of it was that he had a lot of ideas about guitar sound. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's which makes is. total sense because yeah, yeah. he was a guitar player <laughs> but you know i think when you're a producer you have to have an overall vision of mm. of what a band can sound like and you know we've been playing a while um not a long while but in the 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 time 
span of a punk band long enough. And we had good songs. And I don't think it would have been too hard to imagine putting us in the studio and doing a basic kind of recording. Mm-hmm. But that was it. I mean, all the recordings that ended up becoming the Pink Album were from various places and was really without any real producer's touch, I think. Mm -hmm. It was uh, Danger House. We're friends of ours. We'd only been together three months before the Sex Pistols show. Um, October of 77, we went to L.A., and our friends had this band, uh, had this label, Danger House, and they just put us in a studio. We recorded right away these three songs. Um, We did I Believe in Me, and that was a song where where generally I made up the lyrics, or I didn't have any lyrics written or anything except Mm -hmm. for the chorus. So we did it, and then they were like, okay, now we're going to do the vocals, and I was like, uh... (laughs) <laughs> um, what was wrong with that? Uh, I think those were pretty good. So we just left them, and that became the song. Um, but I do always make up the the verses on that generally when when we play it live. But uh, so there was that recording session, and then I I think after that Steve Jones, and then there was another time where somebody was like a engineer and. Wally Hyder Studios, and they said, oh, um, come in at uh, 2.30 in the morning, and we'll do some recording, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. We'll just, the, we'll all open it up, and we'll record. And then we also got asked out to the record plant in Sausalito, which is kind of a known place. I think it was, I don't know if it was a producer or an engineer, but they just said, we'll just do something on spec, you know. Mm-hmm. So basically, we would go go somewhere. We record three songs, maybe four songs, or two songs, or something. It was never anyone saying, "I'm going to put you in a studio. I have the vision of what uh-huh, you can yeah. sound like. I have a, <laughs> like this overarching vision to record um, twelve of your songs." That mm-hmm. never happened for us. So it was always like in little fits and starts with different people. So I'm not blaming Steve Jones for not being a super excellent uh, producer because he was really just a guitar player. <laughs> <laughs> He's trying something new. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was trying something yeah. new. All right, so what actually led to the breakup of the Avengers? And then how did you end up going down to L.A. and spending time with the Screamers and doing other projects? Well, um, we had, you know, after we played with the Sex Pistols, we, we did a little bit of work with, Steve Jones after that and you know it it was just kind of going at fits and starts and then Greg our original guitarist quit the band and we replaced him with Brad Kent from who had played with DOA he was from Vancouver Canada and he had a slightly different style it was a little more prog rock or, or hard rock or something and he and I wrote I mean the band but with him in the band, wrote um, Corpus Christi, which is one of my favorite Avengers mm-hmm. tunes, and I've done versions of it um, with other bands, acoustic bands as well. But, um, you know, on the East Coast, there was Sire Records, there was Blondie and the Ramones, and people had this support from that label. On the West Coast, um, there were really very few labels, that, and there was really no radio and hardly any stores. I mean, it was... Most bands just put out a single. People really didn't have the money. You know, there were no indie labels and indie stations and stuff. That didn't exist yet. Mm -hmm. So I think it was kind of lack of support was one of the reasons we broke up. I think we felt like we'd hit a glass ceiling or something. There's nowhere else to go, really, with the resources available. We never made it off the West Coast. We played from Vancouver to San Diego, but we never got to to New York or anything and Never, certainly never to Europe. So I think we, you know, we just sort of felt like we were, we'd wound down a little bit. And it wasn't my choice to break up the band. It was other people in the band were like, let's just call it a day. And I was like, all right. We're listening to Another Train Blues by Penelope Houston. I saw another train go by last night. 
told me about you It's alright There's always another train I heard that you were lassie And then um, there was a film director, uh, Rene Dalder, who was working with the Screamers, and he had seen me play with the Avengers, and he just saw me as this kind of archetypal blonde American girl or woman who um, would be great in this role in this film that he was putting together with the Screamers. And so right at that time, he asked me to come down, and and I signed a deal with him, and uh to be in this film and to make a record and we were doing some songwriting together and he'd actually I think right after we broke up uh, White Noise Records or maybe they they were trying to put it out before we broke up but anyway the White Noise four song EP with the American Me on it didn't come out until after we'd broken up we broke up about in June and it came out in October of 79 and he'd done remixing on two of the songs um, that were on there. And uh, he was interested in music and film and this whole new scene and his own crazy ideas, <laughs> utopia and stuff. <laughs> so he made this movie that eventually came out as, I think, called Population One. And he was working closely with Tomato and writing songs with Tomato and stuff. So I moved, basically moved down to L.A. to work on that project and got involved in a whole different scene. Um, the people I was hanging out with were kind of in post-punk scenes like the Bee People, Monitor, Human Hands, 45 Grave, whereas I saw other people in punk just going off into this hardcore direction, mm-hmm. um, Black Flag, um, that whole thing, which I was not too interested in. So for me, punk kind of just fell away. And I thought maybe I would, you know, be an actor or something. I don't know. <laughs> and then I fell in love with somebody in England, and I moved to England. That probably saved me from being in L.A. <laughs> I think everybody needs to be saved from being in L.A. for too long. Was that Howard from the Buzzcocks, or did you end up... Uh... No, Howard and I, Howard and I worked together. Uh, he asked me to come over there to work with him. He... After magazine broke up, Howard Devoto was looking for a ki- kind of a, a voice, somebody to sing, a female vocal vocalist to sing his material. And he worked with a bunch of different people. He worked with me. And then he ended up putting out his own album. And I sang back up on one song yeah. on there. But um, we, I, I liked Howard. We, we couldn't really work together that much because we were both lyricists. And yeah. For me, I wasn't that interested in just singing somebody else's material. So, um, but while I was there, I ended up falling in love with the person who became my first husband, Mel, and he also became a the mandolin player in my solo projects. Ah. Um, so I ended up staying there in London for a couple of years, and then at one point we came to America and we had this grand idea of buying this old. 66 slant six dodge dart <laughs> and driving from seattle down in a big u-shape down the west coast and then across the country and oh, yeah. up to new york and then flying back to london selling the car yeah, and flying yeah. back to <laughs> well we got about as far as uh san francisco and we realized <laughs> this wonderful old car was a piece of junk and we were not going to make it across the country and I think we went to L.A., and then we drove back up to San Francisco. And, and I, I remember realizing that in San Francisco, 
people considered me um, Penelope of the Avengers. They considered me a musician. Oh, yeah. And when I'd been living in London, I tried to get in some bands, and I talked to some different people that were in bands, and they had no idea who the Avengers were, but I wasn't trying to do that anyway. They, yeah. I remember looking at an ad in the paper and calling up the band because it was a sort of interesting ad, and they said, oh, well, all right, how old are you? Like, oh, you're American, oh. And they said, how old are you? And I think I said, I'm 23. And they said, oh, well, we're all 21. Like, <laughs> that won't work at all. That's really not what we had in mind. We don't want an older person to be in our... I was just oh, like, funny. what the fuck? All these people had this idea of, yeah. at that time of, that they were going to... Um, get in a band and be on top of the pops and mm-hmm. suddenly, you know, they wouldn't have to become a taxi driver or whatever was really <laughs> laid out for them in their <laughs> British life. Uh, so that kind of um, small-minded uh, ambition kind of turned me off. And and one of the things that Mel and I were going to try to do was to make a film um, as we drove across the country and then write music for the film. And, like, it was going to be this whole project. Yeah. It involved the visual arts and music and travel and all this great stuff. But as I said, the car was not up to it. (laughs) And um, when I was in San Francisco, I realized that it would be easier for me to get musicians to work with me here because of how they thought of me. Mm -hmm. And Greg, the uh, guitar player for the Avengers, had been writing a lot of kind of odd (laughs) music with odd time signatures without any vocals or melodies on it. Mm-hmm. And he said, Would you, do you want to write some songs out of these pieces of music? And I took a couple of them, and I wrote um, Summers of War and Harry Dean, which both have weird time signatures. Well, one's not that weird. It's 3-4. The other one has definitely, Harry Dean definitely has some crazy thing going, going on in it. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so I said to Mel, what if we just stay here for nine months or a year and I'll make an album here and, and then we'll go back. And we basically never went back. <laughs> now what drew you to this more of Americana, rock, folk, jazz? I mean, you kind of mix a, a lot of different styles into your solo music. What drew you to that type of, as opposed to what you were doing with the Avengers? Well... Like I said, punk had kind of turned into this hardcore, mm. testosterone-driven dude rock, <laughs> which I did not like at all. And it was like a million miles an hour, and people were singing their lyrics a million mi- miles a minute. And I was just like, <laughs> I'm not interested in that. And I was listening to Tom Waits and the Violent Femmes um, and hanging out with people that were doing more kind of experimental, weird stuff. And I just decided if I wanted my vocals to be heard, I could do something that was really much quieter and that had a lot of space. And we started putting together bands, and the first bands, (laughs) they were like, I think the first time we played was at Hotel Utah, and it was this weird cabaret of different people playing maybe four songs, each band playing four songs each, but we had made these incredibly complex backdrops that were huge that like as huge as your wall here and then would just drop down behind the band and the band would play a few songs and then another one would drop down (laughs) it was funny how much time we spent on that um the band itself was i believe somebody playing um casio someone playing bongos mel playing possibly mandolin or guitar and then a woman playing cello. Oh. <laughs> I don't think there's any recordings of that. No, definitely no videos. <laughs> but I remember the exact feeling I had when we did it. And I, you know, there were people there, but not a huge number of people. There were a few people that came out to see Penelope from the Avengers, like uh-huh. people with like big mohawks <laughs> yeah. and stuff. This was maybe 82 or yeah. something. It was pretty early. Not what they expected. <laughs> mouths kind of dropped open when we started playing and I remember the song singing this song and feeling like I was walking out into the blackness uh, in front of the stage on a tightrope because <laughs> there was so much space uh-huh. in this music there was no 
wall of noise behind uh, me. And I felt like it was a whole lot scarier and braver I'm of sure me it was. Yeah. to do than, <laughs> than to be in another punk rock band. Eventually, you ended up releasing your first record. How did that come about? That was Bird Boys, correct? Bird Boys, yeah. Um, one of the people, so I started doing more and more shows and kind of developed a little bit more, a band that was a little more regular than the first lineup. I think I had percussion, acoustic guitar, mandolin, and stand-up bass. So we kind of lost the Casio and the some of the... <laughs> Kookiness. The experimental uh, <laughs> yeah. aspect of it. Um, and I think uh, it was uh, Snakefinger, Philip Lithman, came and had seen us, and, a f- and we had some mutual friends. And he said, oh, well, I'd like to record you. We went to a small 16-track studio and recorded what was the beginning of an album. We, I think we did six songs that he had chosen. And um, when we were halfway done with that recording... He was on tour in Europe, and he passed away mm. quite suddenly. He was 37, I think. Um, and he had this heart condition his, most of his life, I think, mm. or, or his whole life. And I, he passed away from that. So that was kind of a blow. And at that point, I think I knew a lot of bands that were like the Longshoremen, people that were working with Subterranean Records. And Steve Tupper from Subterranean said, well, we can go in and record some more material and, you know, and we'll take the two songs from that single and then we'll put it all together. Mm-hmm. And that was what Bird Boys was. I think it was probably 13 songs, uh, six of which were recorded with Philip, and then another four recorded with, in fact, I think we were recording with Kevin Army, oh. and we said, uh, he said, so these are, oh, we were recording, we said, well, these are demos, you know, we'll just try to get a record deal or something. And he was like, these are just demos, right? And we we're like, yeah, yeah, we're not going to put them out. And then we just turned around and, and we're like, oh, sorry, dude, we don't have any more money. That's it. We're putting those out. That's our first album. Look, this label wants it. So Subterranean put out the first Penelope solo album, Bird Boys, and it came out in the 80s. But we were sort of done with it in 86, but it came out probably in 80, beginning of 87. Yes, Pat. Uh, Pat was kind of integral to some of the Bird Boys sound. What, what we had the the bunch of us was a, with Steven Strauss, Mel, myself, Pat, and Kevin Donahue on piano and uh, accordion. What we had was a bunch of people with a bunch of of different ideas about what music was who had not too much idea about what folk music was. <laughs> We're making acoustic semi-folk music 
and just doing it from all these completely different uh, directions. Like Pat was really more into, into rock, but he was willing to play an acoustic guitar because that's what we required <laughs> what of him. Wanted, yeah. So that album itself was really one of the examples, I think, of the San Francisco kind of neo-folk scene or whatever people want to call it. Um, sort of more primitive. And the people who were into folk who would go to Freight and Salvage, they were just like, oh my God, this is not folk. <laughs> and my old fans who were punk rockers, they were just like, oh my God, this is not punk. <laughs> 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 and um, probably people who were into rock were like, oh, this is not rock. <laughs> it was, we were really, uh, we were rejected on, on many on many fronts, but we somehow ended up getting an audience that was uh, people who were interested in, the, in whatever this new thing was. And then a bunch of bands started doing, it was sort of like the barbecue circuit. We knew each other. We would go to each other's backyards and play. And um, there wasn't too much concern with uh, technique or anything like that, or being traditional, traditional folkies or anything. So there was this kind of punk folk, element to it whilst being rejected by both of those genres thoroughly (laughs) and weirdly um around the time of my second album the whole world which i recorded at different fur in the middle of the night and like on thanksgiving and christmas day and christmas eve like all the nights that they were totally dark Mm -hmm. we were able to go in there and record (laughs) On a shoestring budget, but, you know, recorded all basically for to be an album for yeah. the first time ever in my life. Right around that time, people in Germany started noticing that there was this scene going on in, in San Francisco in the Bay Area. And they somehow came over and they gave it a name and they started promoting it over in Germany. And then we got signed to a German independent label. And a whole bunch of these bands also did. And it was this bizarre thing to be sort of recognized halfway across the world Mm -hmm. and then start going there and touring and getting bigger and bigger and bigger over there. And then coming back here and playing the starry plow and, you know, eating a hamburger with fries. (laughs) So, so uh, it was this, it was kind of an unexpected door opening to some kind of success, which we hadn't predicted in any way. You've built up quite a following over the years. I imagine you just came back from a tour supporting your new album on Market Street. How did that go? Um, that was really fun. It was, it was a lot harder than back in the old days. So there was this whole period in the 90s, pretty much through the whole 90s, where we just got bigger and bigger, and I had a few albums out there, and then I got signed to Warner Brothers there, and I had a couple albums on Warner Brothers, um, and which is weird because in America I was – licensed to reprise so <laughs> they took picked me up but it wasn't like they had signed me so they were like Who, who's this person from germany yeah. oh actually she's right here <laughs> in our backyard how come we never noticed her um so there was this whole period of uh what do they call it when you're living off the fat <laughs> high high off the hog <laughs> living high off the hog i got my house in oakland and things were pretty good um the band changed a little bit around the time of the last of the last record on Warner's was when I started to release the Avengers compilations like on uh, Lookout and then later on uh, DBK Works and people were like oh the Avengers need to play again you know do a record release party this and that and that kind of snowballed so as the whole thing with the major label was kind of arcing and coming to an end, the Avengers started picking up again. So this new album on Market Street took what is the first album I've released um, in seven years. Basically, it's the second studio album I've released since not being on the majors anymore. Mm-hmm. So when I was on the majors, you know, we had these huge fat budgets. I went into yeah. fantasy and had a producer and hired a lot of people and, you know, whatever you wanted, what you could put on there. So, um, and then after that, a few years went by, and I put out Pale Green Girl, which I really like. I really like the songs on there. But that was another case of not being able to afford to 
record it all at one once. I recorded four songs, you know, thinking, well, maybe these will be demos, you know, maybe I can find a deal. Then recorded another four or five songs, and then a third, and then put that all together and made an album. So that was seven years ago, and I decided, you know, I really want to do it right. I want to just go in with all my songs and record it all at once and have it have a certain unity, a certain fidelity. And I was talking to the people at Fantasy, and the person who had produced my two major label albums, Jeffrey Wood, is now the, the uh, director or manager at Fantasy Studios. And he said, well, let's, let's talk, you know, let's work something out. And so I got to go in and record there and record this album all in one go. And I hired, you know, some of the best people I know in music in the area. Um, Pat Johnson's all over it. And Danny Eisenberg played keyboards and Don Richardson played drums. Um, Steven Strauss, my old bass player, did some bass work as well as Alec Palau. Michael Pappenberg, a really good guitarist, was doing rhythm guitar. And then I had a string quartet on a couple songs. So it was really a dream come true as far as, as who I worked with, the studio I was in. And um, <laughs> and it wasn't handed to me. You know, I uh-huh. did all of it myself. I wrote all these songs myself except one which Pat wrote, and I paid for it all myself. Uh-huh. And... Uh, and uh, Made it all happen, and I painted the cover of the record. <laughs> oh, okay. I was Designed ask all the artwork and everything. Yeah. And I have a label in Europe that put it out over there on vinyl and CD, and then I also put it out in America myself on CD. So it's been a real, what's the word? It's been a real mountain that I've been yeah. climbing. <laughs> yeah. And um, I'm real happy with, with how it came out. It sounds so. great. I've listen to the whole thing and it's really well put together Thank there you. is a unity to it yeah yeah that's what i was hoping was that i was not going to make another record that sounded like it was recorded in four mm-hmm. or five different studios over a period of three years <laughs> what's a couple of your favorite highlights i'm sure you like all the songs on there but well the title track on market street um i love it it's the i guess i could tell the story of the the first song I wrote for the record and then the last song I wrote. Um, on Market Street, the song was uh, didn't exist when we went in. We were about to go into the studio. We'd been rehearsing with the whole band. I had 10 songs that I was working with, and we, we were going to have the band play on most of them, and a couple were going to be with string quartet or just acoustic. And uh, one of them was USSA, which was a song actually from the 80s that had been written around the Bird Boys time and never got recorded. And I was, I thought it was kind of a fun song. And I thought, oh, it would be cool to do this. So we were about, it was like the day before we were going to go in the studio, or a couple days before. And Pat said to me, you know, this work is so mature and these songs are so great and your writing is so great. I think throwing this old song in there is a mistake. And you know, I don't know if you want to just have it as a B-side or something, but I don't think it should be on the album. And I was just like, oh, Pat. <laughs> then I'm going to have nine songs on my album. That's just not enough. <laughs> I don't know what to do. He was like, write another song. Yeah. And I said, that's easy for you to say because <laughs> it actually takes me about a year to write a song. <laughs> so, And we're going in the studio in, you know, in a day or two. He was like, well, think about it. And I was just like, ah, <laughs> fuck. So I went home and I started messing around with some some chords that I've been working with and the melodies I've been working with on the auto harp. And I had this poem that actually I was reading at a few poetry readings um, about people on Market Street, uh, people that live on the street, and people I've seen in my daily life working at the library, the main library in San Francisco, and I started singing that, started putting the the poem and the melodies together, and suddenly I had this song, and I was just like, wow, I think this song is good. <laughs> so I recorded it just into my little iPod, and then I brought it in, and it was too late. So this was like the day before we went in the studio. It was too late to have the band play it, 
But I decided I would just do it as an acoustic song. And we started recording it. And then we put guitar on it. And we put bass on it. And there was no, I don't think there was any drums or percussions or anything. And Jeffrey Wood, um, who was overseeing and, and co-producing this whole project with me, after we put everything on it and put the vocal on it, it was quite delicate. He said, you know, I think it needs one more thing, and I'll I'll try to do something and get it on there. And I went away on some some other Avengers tour, which <laughs> as I was doing. And um, when I came back, he said, listen to what I did. And he had, pl- he had taken the Mellotron, which they have an actual real mm. ancient Mellotron. And a Mellotron is a very early synthesizer that it plays loops of tape that have been recorded of different instruments and then you play different keys and the the tape somehow i don't know it's the weirdest sounding thing but it's a synthesizer it's one of the like most in earliest primitive synthesizers that exists and he put this really haunting beautiful part on there and I was really stunned, and I just said, that's perfect. I don't Put know. It on there. I don't know what it is. And people think it's either like oboe or cello. It's like really haunting sound. And I felt it went, and it was very, very simple. And I felt it went with uh, the whole feel of the song wow. perfectly. This is for the wastrel, invisible and shamed. Down on his knees on Market Street. Sickness is unnamed Through the rain he genuflects His pilgrimage is real The shoppers with their Christmas lists Go round him where he kneels And if your faith is true If your faith is strong song that I wrote for that album was in 2004 when I was touring in Europe for the Pale Green Girl album. I wrote the, the first song of, of this group and it was uh, If You're Willing and I was in a hotel. It was like late at night. I couldn't sleep. I was in a hotel in Hamburg. I started playing my auto harp and writing and this song was another one of those times where the song kind of just arrived and it was there and it was done. And then I think we actually played it on the tour, on the rest of the tour after. I was like, listen to this song I just wrote. And everyone was like, oh, that's good. So that song was the beginning of this album in that it took its life. It took life 
right away. It start, you know, I had to. We started playing it on that tour, and I've been playing it ever since. And it's sort of like, well, when people are like, I want that song, and I tell them for years and years and years, oh, I haven't recorded it yet, <laughs> and they're like, well, um, why not? <laughs> it's like, uh, huh. recording's not easy. Yeah. Uh, so all the other songs that came after that, you know, there was a real dramatic part of my life happening after that uh, divorce and um, a lot of different things happening. And I wrote a lot of songs around all that drama and trauma. And uh, so they've all, they started piling up and I felt the weight of them. Like time to uh, unload these. Yeah. (laughs) Every, every January 1st, I'd be like, okay, what's my new year's resolution? (laughs) Oh yeah. Record the album. Yeah. (laughs) For years. And then the end of the year would come around. I was like, oh, ooh, I went back to school, but I didn't. I went on a tour with the Avengers, but I didn't record my album. So finally I buckled down and did it. Uh, I have another question about the Avengers. And you mentioned that you were going back on tour. I think around 2004 you started doing Avengers tours again. Now, like a lot of bands, you know, in their early years, they didn't end up owning the rights to their own music. And I know you went through a lawsuit. We don't want to get into any details, obviously. But you now own the rights to the to those songs, and you're able to release the, uh, the re- original recordings again? Yes. The issues have been resolved. Okay, that is okay. what I'm allowed to say. Okay. The issues have been okay. resolved. Um, we didn't go to court. We settled out of court. Okay. But we did... Um, we did have a big battle to win back the rights to to the band uh, for the songs and copyrights and all that. And we settled. We settled it and worked it out so that have, we were going to put out the Pink Album again, and that's what we did. And now you've just done that recently. Yes. Where is the best place to go to get more information about your solo projects and Avengers recordings? You can just go right to www dot penelope.net all right so that's pretty easy all you have to remember is the net part and you keep a pretty good news uh archive going there on um, avengers news and the, and the recording releases and all that stuff. yeah i think you know i also do twitter which is penelope net and then there's a, on facebook there's a and a penelope page and an avengers page and there's probably more news those are probably a little bit more up to date than my website. I, I do update my website when I'm in town, but if I'm on tour, it's easier for me to update the the Facebook page or Twitter. So, what's next for you? Are are you looking to do? What's the next uh, project that you're going to be working on? The Avengers seem to <laughs> suck up a lot of my time. <laughs> Another thing is I'll be going back to school in fall. Mm-hmm. I took the spring semester off to pursue these the release of these two records and the tours that I had to do, two European tours, and then a West Coast tour with the Avengers. And What are you studying in school? I am about to get a degree in a, just a BA in um, studio art with a painting and printmaking dual emphasis. Oh, okay. And you've been putting those skills to use. You did the album cover for your uh, latest album. Have you done any other art projects or, or uh, gallery showings or anything? Um, yeah, I, there's, there's been a show at the, at the library that I did of, um, actually portraits of people that work at the library, uh, done on collages made of materials gathered at the library. (laughs) And, uh, it's kind of interesting. You know, what I need to do is get, uh, an online gallery going Mm -hmm. and it will probably be attached to, um, Penelope.net too. So... Sooner or later, sometime this year, people should be able to see the, my artwork, my prints, and paintings and stuff online. I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> now you're like committed. One more thing I have to do. <laughs> With all Please your free time. God. <laughs> I have uh, one more question for you that I like to ask everybody on the show. What does music mean to you? For me, it is just one of my forms of expression. Um, And it's one of my main forms of expression. I'm also a visual artist, but I think that I've really, in a way, defined who I am to the outside world with my music, Um, both with the Avengers and my solo work. I think that if people hear those songs or see me perform live, they're, they're seeing 
who I really am. Mm-hmm. So I, it's for me, it's self-expression, I would say. And definitely with the Avengers, it's an opportunity to scream. <laughs> Some good primal therapy. <laughs> yeah. Is there uh, anything else you'd like to talk about or promote? These two records, the Pink Album, which has just come out on both vinyl and CD, and my record, which is available also vinyl and CD, um, that's about it. Those those are the two things I've been working for, it seems like, forever to get together and, and put out. But I hopefully will be doing uh, more gallery shows as well. Well, thanks so much for coming down from Music Live Radio. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again to Penelope Houston. We're going to leave you with one more track from the new album on Market Street. This track entitled, If You're Willing. is ragged and my coat is far from new But like the shimmer of a Carolina rainbow Between the cracks the light is coming through And in your cobbled streets and in your Can justify the killing 